You're listening to Ask Dr. E, where Dr. Michael Easley answers your biblical and theological questions in 10 minutes or less, or sometimes more like this episode. Here's today's question. My name is Michael. I am from Como, Texas, or the Sulphur Springs area. I recently met a gentleman who has multiple wives, and he is a very uh, learned student of Scripture and is a proponent of polygyny and believes that the Bible in no way condemns polygyny as a sin. And so I was curious if there's actual biblical evidence that refutes polygyny as a sin. Very interesting question, I know, but would love to hear your take on it. Great to hear from you, Michael, and I trust you're loving living in the great Lone Star State. That's Hannah's birth state. Sure is. Texas forever. Texas forever. Well, let's let's get into this. First of all, God designed marriage as a monogamous heterosexual union until death. And it's unfortunate we have to use all those words, but it's monogamous, one person, heterosexual, until death. Secondly, man is always pulled by sin. It is our nature. Whether it was you can eat anything in the garden except from one tree, the temptation is just simply too great and too strong, and we distrust God at his word. That's the bottom line. We don't trust God at his word. I'm going to provide everything for you but this one thing hmm. you can't do. So we want to be our own gods. We want to set our own standards. We want to do our own thing. And we work hard to sanctify or somehow justify our sin. Third, we got to remember that the few passages that address having more than one wife are not approvals or endorsements. So the first time we read of more than one wife is a passage in Genesis 4.19 and 4.23 from the safe-to-say evil man Lamech who boasted his prowess. The sinning braggart brandishes that he has two wives and that he's murdered a man for wounding him and a boy for striking me. And perversely, he appeals to Cain's murder of Abel. Quote, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventyfold. In other words, what Lamech is saying is, look, I'll marry more than one wife if I want, and I'll kill anyone who opposes or threatens me. Hardly a godly model for polygamy. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. So the first polygamist is a murderer and a braggart. So not exactly an example for endorsing polygamy. Second passage, Deuteronomy 17, 17. It is clear, quote, He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. So what we know is that God's law is prophetic. When Solomon, the wisest man in history, think about that. This is the smartest guy in the Bible, we might say. He did so much good, he's dismantled because of the multiplication of wives. These wives influenced him, and little by little, it moved Israel away from monotheism, away from worshiping Yahweh Elohim, and this sin affected not just his household, but the whole nation. Fourth, we have a few times in the Old Testament where a person has more than one wife. These passages aren't endorsing polygamy. They're concerned with the lineage and legacy of a man who had no son, He passes away, and his wife is left a widow. For example, in Deuteronomy 25.5, we read, When brothers live together, and one of them dies and has no son, 
the wife of the deceased shall not marry outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And I encourage you to read this whole passage. It really goes from Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. But let me just run through a number of bullets here to help us orient what's happening here. Is this polygamy? First of all, this is a law for a Levirate marriage. This wasn't a law that was tribal-wide. It was just for the tribes of Levite. Secondly, these brothers are living together, which strongly suggests this is a family clan. So think of tribes in antiquity, and you lived in compounds. You lived in an area together. Third, the widow is childless. Now, some of the rabbis say she may have had uh, daughters by her first husband, but you have to have that firstborn son to turn the name and the land and the promises and all that God designed in the Levitical order. Uh, fourth, the main reason for this provision was that a firstborn son is then given his father's name because that's the way you continue the name. Uh, fifth, the widow was not to marry outside the tribe. Sixth, we're not going to dive super deep into the passage, but there was a legal provision if the brother couldn't take on the burden of taking care of his sister-in-law and her family. So in sum, this passage in Deuteronomy 25 has nothing to do with the approval of polygamy. It was a provision within the Levitical tribe uh, for a man who doesn't have a namesake, we would say. Do you know why it was, it was just specific to the Levitical tribe? Levites are a unique tribe in that they are, so Aaron is the high priest, and the Levitical tribe are where the priests come from. Right. So this is the only tribal group that you could appoint priests, and eventually one of them would be the high priest. He would serve you know, once in his lifetime right. as a role. So God protected the Levitical order. We, we, he was, it really means they were set apart. They didn't work the same way other tribes worked. Right. They were a unique tribe. So I think it's all protecting the name. Interesting. Uh, the namesake, yeah. And probably making sure there are enough male heirs because only men could be priests, right? right. So, yeah, right. okay, okay. Right. So finally, we go to the New Testament, and, and Jesus is going to bear out the standard back to the very beginning, heterosexual monogamous marriage. And if we consider, for example, the requirements of an elder, explicitly husband of one wife. Now, that's interpreted a number of different ways, but at the common sense, a husband of one wife, even if it's one wife at a time, which some commentators argue, I think, wrongly, uh, it's, it's one woman, one man for life. God did not, indeed he does not, render experiential judgment every time we sin. Think about this. If God judged you and me every time experientially we sin, None of us would be alive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Solomon, David, uh, the kings who added wives, the commentary is not approving their actions. It's simply a record that these things occurred. And it's, it's almost somber when you read, and David added more wives. It's not, a, it's not a commentary of approval. It's a record of their actions. So while not endorsing polygamy, we have a couple of Old Testament examples where a man added a wife as part of a provision for a very specific reason. Yeah, you know that it's interesting because we have Michael who's called in saying he actually has a new friend who has multiple wives and 
that seems really foreign to a lot of us. But you've encountered this before through your friend Musa, right? It's interesting. When we uh, were living in Grand Prairie, Texas at the time, uh, Musa Asaki became a dear, dear friend of our family. And uh, Musa was from Nigeria, and he was the product of a polygamist family. No kidding. He had a, a Muslim mom and a Christian mom, and I think there was just two women. Wow, I and, did not know uh, that. The one who came to Christ out of Islam was then, of course, you know, treated differently. Wow, yeah. And Musa came to Christ later through a Sudan Interior Missions Sim missionary. Incredible. And uh, his mother lived in a compound where basically it was like a, a block wall uh, perimeter, and she had her own space sure. with her children. Yeah. And had no more relationships with, uh, or a sexual relation with the uh, wow. Muslim uh, father. Wow. So when Musa came to the United States and did his training at Grace Seminary and Dallas Seminary and then went back, he wrote his dissertation on this very issue because as Nigerians came to Christ out of polygamous situations, what do you do with these women and yeah, children you, you fathered? excommunicate right. all of these women. Right. And then you send, right. it, you send them to poverty? Right. That's not right. Yeah. So yeah. it was, and that was his whole dissertation. He worked in concert with some folks from, um, Wycliffe and, and trying to figure out how do we train because the goal isn't to go oh so, so this guy comes to Christ and he's got multiple wives and all the core children I'm sorry I, you can't live with me anymore right pick your favorite and right. cast out the right. rest or continue to live with multiple wives mm-hmm. so in, in very practical terms hmm. it's a horrible situation but in practical terms um, what the best case scenario was you would send the wife back to her family of origin uh-huh. if that wasn't culturally shaming for her, but you had to provide for that wife and her children the rest of their Forever. lives. Forever, yeah. That was the best case you could hope for. And some of the compounds, they actually would, you know, create basically rooms like Musa's mom, and uh, that's just how you how a person would live. And you just took care of them. You, you no longer had relations with with them. Sure. But you had to provide for that woman and her children. Sure. So maybe Michael's friend is from a similar culture like that where it's permissible. Mm. But all that to say, um, you know, back at the beginning, heterosexual monogamous marriage for life until one of the other dies. And uh, that's that's all I got to say about that. Yeah, I, it's harder than I thought because there really isn't a piece of scripture where, I mean, does Jesus condemn polygamy directly at any point in the New Testament? He doesn't tell me how to fix my lawnmower. Well, yeah, that would be. You know, the Bible is, but it's important. The Bible is is the complete text for a life of faith and practice, but it yeah. doesn't tell us about everything in life. So we have to look at wisdom, and that's what theology is doing. So as we go through these passages, we're building a theology. But Christ is very clear in, in all the Gospels. It's one man, one woman for life. You know, Even the exasperation when they try to set him up with the divorce question, which uh-huh. we've talked about in previous episodes, uh-huh. um, everybody misses the setup. It reveals they were still arguing about is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? Right. And that's the setup question because they know there's no simple answer. And what does Jesus say? From the beginning, it was not this way. Mm. But Moses permitted it because of the stubbornness of your heart. Mm-hmm. So stubbornness of our heart, pride, making God in our homage. So yeah. this is not a new issue at a principal level. We want to do it on our terms and our way, not God's word. And again, it sounds cliche, it sounds trite, it sounds, you know, so old-fashioned. One woman, one man, heterosexual, monogamous, for life. 
And, and again, by Christ's time, the Levitical provision would have long been abandoned because the priesthood is all you know discombobulated and they're not following the law right. Got it. You know, Christ overturns the tables in the temple complex. Right. They're right. doing it wrong. So that form of worship had become, I mean, think about this. God ordains the Levitical system to worship him. Wood haulers, uh, sacrificial management of, of animals, the proper way to do sacrifices, the produce sacrifices. Uh-huh. I mean, it's a big operation. And they had totally commercialized it and, and turned it into something it wasn't. Yeah. So they're ruining the very system God established for them to worship him. Uh-huh. <laughs> and these are the priests. Right. Which he was the hardest on. Right. You remember, he's hard on the scribes and Pharisees. Right. So interesting. I was actually reading that very passage, several chapters where God is giving Moses the very specific instructions on building the ark, the tabernacle, the um, robes that the priests would wear, all of the law for the Levites, all these things. And I looked up at Tyler and I said, I wonder if you could say that God gives the most instruction in the Bible strictly in how to worship him over anything else. I mean, I don't, and I don't know if that's, but just based on the amount of space the content, that's in the and Old Testament. Tale. and Yeah, because, I mean, he gives a lot of instruction on the ark or, you know, there's things like that, but there's a lot of things that we wish he gave us way more instruction on but spend so much time on that, um, and we don't even do any of that stuff today. Right, and that's where wisdom is such an important principle in, in biblical theology is you're, you're cobbling together a consistent story, let's say that. So what was his view of marriage from the beginning? Has mm. that changed? No. Uh, has procreation changed? No. Uh, you know, no matter what we do with science and technology and so-called improvement in our, our way of life, um, you're, you're not going to err uh, following his word as best we know how. You just won't. If you've got a question for Ask Dr. E, call us or text us at 615-281-9694, or you can email us at question at michaelincontext.com. We would love to hear from you. Ask Dr. E is a production of Michael Easley in Context. The music for this show is composed by Jason Germain, and you can find more biblical resources at michaelincontext.com.